16 is our text. Verses 18 to 20 is uh, the passage that I'm going to preach on, but I'm going to start reading in verse 13 to remind you of the context, the circumstances in which uh, the text we're going to look at were preached, uh, were, were spoken rather. So, this is the word of the Lord. It has no errors in it. Uh, in the original languages, and it is the Word of God in faithful translations like the one from which I'm reading. Listen carefully to it. God is speaking. Now, when Jesus, verse 13, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he began asking his disciples, saying, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah. But still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, because Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose, shall loose on earth, shall have been loosed in heaven. Then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. Amen. Pray with me. Lord, we thank you for your living and active word that we have just read from. We thank you that it is piercing as far as the division of bones and marrow of joints and ligaments. I got that mixed up. But we thank you, Lord, that you use your word in our hearts to speak to us, to convict us, to instruct us, to humble us, to bless us, to cause us to draw closer to you. Would you please do all the above? As your word is preached now, Lord Jesus, would you please be our preacher as you have promised to be? Uh, would you please forbid that I should say anything that would be contrary to what is true, what is uh, in accordance with your written word? And would you please bless ourself, us here? But especially, would you honor yourself and the Father and the Spirit through what happens in this time? And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Right. Amen. I'm a hot mess. Anyway, children, excuse me, you all have seen um, a key, right? You all know what a key is, right? This morning, uh, when we came to church, um, I was the first one here this morning. I used my church key, and I put it in the door. The little hole in the door, and I turned that key, 
And lo and behold, the door was open and I was able to come in to the church. Makes sense, right? And we lock the church to keep people out who shouldn't be in the church. That's why the lock is there on the door. So locks have the purpose of um, keeping certain people in and keeping other people out, right? And we use keys <clears throat> to work those locks so that they keep certain people out that we don't want in the church and to uh, open the door so that the right people can come in, right? Well, that's true of the physical key and this physical building, what I just said. But you know what? The church is also spiritual. In fact, the church is really not this building. We speak of it sometimes as going over to the church, but the church is really not the building that we're in right now. Or any other building that looks kind of like this building and uh, has a steeple or something like that that identifies it as, as a place where people worship. The church, biblically, is the people of God. And the Bible teaches us in this very passage that there is a key that uh, Jesus, first and foremost, as the king of the church, uses, but that he has delegated, that is, he's entrusted, he's given the key to uh, certain individuals, and they are to use that key to open and close the spiritual church, the people of God, the community of believers. And this passage that we are looking at today speaks about those keys. It's toward the end of the sermon. Um, there are four points in this sermon, but they're brief up until the last one, which is the key point, literally the key point. And, but listen for that, okay? Because this is important. Well, it's always important because it's God's word, but but you will, um, this is a very instructive sermon. There's going to be a lot of, keep your Bibles open and follow me as best you can. There's going to be a lot of scripture in this one. So brace yourselves for that. In fact, maybe you better not, maybe you better let me do the turning so you don't, so you can listen. That might be a better idea. At any rate, it's going to be full of uh, scripture. Uh, you've seen the context. I've already read it. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. Jesus is with his immediate uh, band of disciples. He's gone to a remote place, Caesarea Philippi, Philippi, about 24 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, and he is uh, asking them these very, very important questions uh, to get to the point that he wants to get to, which is what is said here. Um, he wants to ask them the question, and he does finally uh, say to them in the second question, but who do you say I am? After asking them, what do people out there, that uh, the crowds, what are they saying about me? But he wants to say, but you, you guys, who do you think I am? And of course, Peter answers for the group, that's important, and I will, I'll bring that up later in the sermon. But he answers for all of the uh, twelve, and he says, Thou art the Christ, that is, the Messiah. You are the promised Messiah of the Old Testament Scriptures. You are the, you are the uh, Son of Man who is ascended up to the Ancient of Days, described in Daniel 7. You are the, the kingly Son of God, of Yahweh, described in Psalm 2, uh, and, and, and many other things that I mentioned in last week's sermon. Peter was saying, You are that Messiah. Messiah, the divine Messiah, as evidenced by the fact that you are the son of the living God. You are God the son, is what he could have said, and that's what he actually meant when he said that. 
And then, of course, Jesus answered with the saying, You are blessed, Simon. And by implication, anybody else who believe, believingly says what you just said about me, you are blessed. And God was the one that gave you the insight to, uh, to understand that. That brings us to the passage, verses 18 through 20, and really it's 18 and 19 that I'm going to be focusing on here. Um, and there are four points that I want to derive from this that are found right here. Uh, you can see them with me. So first point in the sermon is we're going to look at who's the ultimate builder of the New Testament church. Secondly, we're going to see who the rock-solid foundation of the New Testament church is. Thirdly, we're going to look at the great promise regarding the New Testament church. And finally, we're going to look at the appointed gatekeepers of the New Testament church. First, the ultimate builder of the New Testament church. And we see that in the first part of verse 18. Uh, Jesus says, I also say to you, and here you is singular, because he's been talking to Peter, uh, starting in verse 17. Blessed are you, singular, Simon Barjona. But remember, well, I'll get to that. Um, he says, you, Peter, verse 18, but I also say to you that you are Peter. Re- Peter there is Petros in the Greek, uh, 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 Cephas or Cephas in the Aramaic, which is what Jesus was probably speaking. And it means rock. Blessed are you, uh, excuse me, uh, and you are, I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock, I will build my church, Jesus says. Jesus says he will build his church. What does that mean, to say that Jesus is the builder of the New Testament church? What it means, of course, is quite obviously, he is the one who is doing the building. He is the driving force behind any advances that you see in the New Testament church. Whatever those advances are, be they numerical or spiritual advances or geographic, um, whatever they might be, those advances that are genuinely God-blessed advances as opposed to artificial ones or fake ones, um, True advances in the church are brought about by Jesus, which makes sense, of course, because he is the king of the church. He is the representative head of all the people who are truly believing in the church, and he's the covenant head of everybody who's in the church, whether they're believing or not. And there, and the, the, there are tares, of course, in the in the broader church, sad to say. But they are outwardly in covenant with Christ as opposed to believers who are inwardly in covenant. But at any rate, Jesus is the builder of his New Testament uh, church. There was an Old Testament church called Israel. The New Testament church, also called Israel, by the way, the Israel of God. Uh, Roman, uh, Galatians 6 and Romans 9 and elsewhere. But Jesus is the, it's the builder of this uh, structure, this edifice. Which means, here's some application... All credit, all credit for any God-honoring growth um, that we observe in this or some other expression, some other expression of the true church, all credit for that growth, that advance, belongs to Jesus. It never belongs to men. Ever. Amen. Not to faithful preachers. Not to faithful pastors, and all elders are pastors, not just me. Not to faithful prayers. 
not to faithful laborers. No, they get none of the credit. Jesus gets it all. This makes that point. We need to remember that. Something we must not forget, especially those of us who are leaders in the church. We must never forget that. This means, by the way also, that all of us, leaders and laity, need to be looking to Jesus to bless this local expression of the church, our broader Presbyterian denomination, and the church at large, both in this country and around the world, which transcends and crosses many denominations uh, and includes many local um, local uh, bodies, we'll call them, and also nationally across the world. We need to be seeking Jesus to bless them. We don't need to be looking to church growth methods. We don't need to be looking to um, uh, uh, dolled up sermons that have all sorts of nice little uh, bells and whistles in them. We don't need to be looking to young guys who dress a certain way uh, or churches that look a certain way for uh, the advancement of the kingdom. No, we need to look to Christ and him alone. Christ is the builder of his church, and Christ himself is also, and I want to say this because of the point I'm going to make next, he is also the primary foundation rock, or foundational rock, upon which he is building his New Testament church. He's the builder, and he is also the foundation, uh, the, the foundational rock. Evidence for that is found in two places that I want to look at in 1 Corinthians. One is 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, where Jesus is clearly identified by Paul and the Holy Spirit as the rock. I'll read it. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 4. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Bingo. Okay? Christ is the rock, and Christ is the rock which is the foundation, the ultimate foundation of the church. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 makes that point, verses 10 and 11, where Paul says, According to the grace of God which was given to me as a wise master builder, notice here here Paul describes himself as the builder, but he isn't the builder, he's actually the the instrument who is the builder through whom Christ is building, but he identifies himself in that capacity here. As a wise master builder, I laid a foundation. Okay, he says, I laid the foundation, and another is building upon it. But let each man be careful how he builds upon it. Each preacher, that's talking about preachers there. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the rock. He is the ultimate rock, the ultimate foundation of the church. Period. So, the fact that Jesus is that ultimate rock for which, on which Christ, uh, is building the, his New Testament church, that once again reminds us, in addition to the fact that he's the rock, reminds us that all credit belongs to him for the church's progress wherever that progress is found. So we've seen who the ultimate builder of the New Testament church is in this passage. This passage also speaks about the foundation, the solid rock foundation of the New Testament church. And this is a secondary foundation. And that's again, he says, upon this rock, I will build 
my church. Now, well, as I already said, Jesus is the primary rock. He is the primary foundation upon which the building of his building, that he is building, is uh, being built. But, I failed to uh, read the first part of the verse, which is important. But, Peter, and those whom Peter represented on this occasion, in this conversation, they were what we might call the secondary rock upon which the New Testament church is built. Remember, Jesus had been addressing his questions to all the disciples. He uses the plural when he asked them, who, uh, he said, he, he began asking his disciples, verse 13, but who do the people say that the Son of Man is? And then they answered. And then he says in verse 15, but who do you, plural, all of you gentlemen, who do you say that I am? Then Peter answers, as he is wont to do on many occasions, for the entire group. He speaks up, speaking for all of them, knowing that this is what they all affirm. But he says it. Uh, and so he's representing all of them when he speaks. The whole future ap- apostolate, if you will. Uh, all of the uh, future apostles, with the exception of uh, uh Judas, there we go, took a second, uh, who obviously was not going to be a future apostle. And with the, uh, Paul's name is not mentioned there, he became an apostle, as did Matthias. So, but he is speaking there to, um, uh, to the group, and Peter answers for the group. So, Peter and the rest of the future apostles, they're now disciples at this point, but Peter and the rest of the future apostles, as they, and this is key, as they believingly confessed Jesus Christ as the Christ, as the Messiah, and as the divine Son, the Son of the living God, as they confessed him believingly that way, they constituted, and still, by the way, constitute, the rock upon whom Christ has built the New Testament church. Confirmation of this is found in two places at least, probably others, but we're going to just look at two, and I do want you to turn to this, Ephesians 2.20. We read in Ephesians 2.20, this, I'll back up to verse 19, let you get there, Ephesians 2.19 and 20. Paul's talking about the New Testament church composed of both Jews and Gentiles now, and it's new, uh, new, uh, Look, if you will, that includes Gentiles. It says, so then, you, you Gentiles, he's speaking to the Gentiles who are Christians now, so then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. He refers to New Testament prophets there who were under the apostles' authority. Uh, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple, a new spiritual temple in the Lord. And he goes on. So there the apostles are represented as the foundation or the rock of the church. Um, and also over in Revelation, turn with me there, Revelation 21, verses 9 uh, through 14. And verse 14 is the clincher. 
But listen as I read verses 9 through 14, where the, the, uh, the heavenly Jerusalem is described here, of which we are a part, by the way. Don't forget, we are a part of the heavenly church. The church, the, uh, uh, the invisible church is comprised of those on earth and those who are in heaven. And so here's what he says. Uh, this is John speaking, Revelation 21, verse 9. And one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, I shall show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her brilliance was like a very costly stone as a stone of crystal clear jasper. It had a great and high wall with 12 gates. Notice 12. 12 gates and had, and at the gates 12 angels and names were written on them which are those of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three gates on the north, and three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. And here's verse 14. And the wall of the city had twelve foundation stones, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. Catch it. The foundation of the heavenly bride, uh, the church uh, of uh, uh, in its complete state at the end of uh, the ages is has the, the uh, apostles represented by the founda- foundation stones of that uh, visible structure that represents the spiritual church. Okay, so they are the apostles were um, a secondary rock, if you will, or foundation. Now, this does not contradict uh, the fact that Jesus himself is the primary rock upon whom the New Testament church is built. Why? Because the apostles' ministry was a virtual extension of Jesus' ministry. Uh, I'm not going to take time to look at these verses, but write them down if you want to see the point. Luke 10.16 and Acts 13.47 make the point that the apostles were were essentially in the place of Christ, or were acting as Christ, if you will, in those passages, uh, and had the authority of Christ, uh, and were extensions of Christ, uh, uh, metaphorically speaking. And uh, those passages make that point. And so it doesn't. Con- it's not contradictory to say Jesus is the rock, uh, and the apostles are the rock. That Jesus is the foundation. That the apostles are the foundation because their ministry was an extension of his ministry. Okay, we've seen the ultimate builder of the New Testament church, the uh, rock foundation, rock-like foundation of the New Testament church, the secondary foundation. This passage also points us to the great promise. Regarding the New Testament church. Back to Matthew. Uh, I'll read it again, verse 18. The promise comes at the end of the verse. I also say to you that you, Peter, that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. And the gates of Hades shall not, and I'm going to translate this different than the NIV, or the New American Standard does, shall not prevail against it. Some versions have it that way. That's a, uh, that's a better rendering. Uh, I'll explain why in a second. So, the gates of Hades shall not prevail against 
this church that Jesus is building, this New Testament church. Now, to understand what Jesus means here, it's going to take a little bit of a little bit of time to explain this, but I want to explain it and take the time to do it so you get it. In order to understand what Jesus means by this promise, we need to understand what he means by the phrase, the gates of Hades. Okay? In the four Gospels, not all the New Testament, but in the four Gospels, first four books of the New Testament, the word Hades, Hades, excuse me, Hades, normally means hell. It's normally a reference to hell. Now, in other places, not necessarily in the New Testament, uh, because it's borrowed from the Greek world, and it had had Greek meaning uh, that uh, some of the later writings in the New Testament, uh, probably the meaning there is the Greek understanding of it. But um, here, in the in the in the Gospels, it normally means a reference to hell. Evidence of that fact, in case you're wondering, I'm going to give you a couple uh, quick references here. Matthew chapter 11, 23 and 24, don't turn there. But there in that passage, the word Hades is used and it is sharply contrasted with the word heaven. What's the opposite of heaven? It's hell. Right. And there is a, and if you look at the passage, there's a, it's directly contrasted heaven with Hades. Okay. Hades is also, in that passage, a place of torment. Not just a place of the dead, which was the Greek understanding of the term, that's where all the dead went, it wouldn't necessarily involve torment. But in, in that passage, Matthew 11, 23 and 24, it's a place of torment. Likewise, the same is true in Luke 16, 23 and 24, and there I'm going to read this to you. Luke 16, 23 and 24, and you'll hear uh, the point. We read there, this is the, the parable of La, the rich man and Lazarus. Most of you know it. Don't worry if you don't. But just hear, hear what it says in the middle of the parable, starting in verse 23. And in Hades, this is the rich man, and in Hades he lifted up his eyes. Notice Hades. Being in torment. And saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. That's hell, folks. That's not the Greek version of the word Hades, uh, although the word is borrowed from the Greek world, uh, but it was co-opted and used by the New Testament writers to designate uh, hell. Other words were used as well, Gehenna. Um, uh, I think that there might be one other uh, word as well, but I've forgotten it. Anyway, you get the point. Uh, so that is, uh, that's the understanding of Hades that uh, is really in this passage. Now, let me say this. So gates of Hades uh, means the gates of hell. So how do we interpret this? Well, the most common view, and this is the most common view, is that the gates of Hades refer to refers to uh, attacks on the church by Satan, who's, by the way, not in hell. He's on earth. But the most common view is that the gates of Hades um, are, uh, represent Satan and his, uh, and his demons, and that Matthew 16, 18, this verse we're looking at, this promise, is a promise to God's people that Satan will not succeed in his efforts to destroy the church. 
Okay, that's the most common view. Now, it is certainly true that Satan cannot and will not thwart the progress of the gospel nor the growth of the church in the New Testament age. That is certainly true. However, one can arrive at that conclusion from statements made elsewhere in the scriptures without relying on this verse. The problem with using this particular statement, this promise, and the gates of Hades will not um, overpower, that's the translation that's often used to justify the other position, the problem with using that verse uh, as a statement to support the assertion that, that this is a reference to uh, the uh, assaulting forces of the powers of darkness upon the church and that somehow it will resist those uh, forces. The problem with that is, think about what is a gate used for? Gates are normally associated with defense, not offense. With defense. And so to use the gates, a, uh, a metaphor, as, as a as a description of an assaulting demonic host, assaulting uh, offensively the church, just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Why would, why would Jesus use that metaphor of gates to support, to, to speak about an assault from the demonic host here? It just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So since the gates of hell are almost certainly defensive here, the most natural, I would suggest, understanding of the phrase, the gates of hell will not prevail against her, that is the church, is this that the powers of hell will not be able to resist the forces of the church when the church is assaulting hell. Let me explain this. You're like, what are you talking about? Hell, as it were, remember this first. Let me say this. Hell is a place of divine punishment. Where God is, in his wrath, in his justice, Satan is not there. He will be one day, but he's not there right now. God is there right now, punishing the reprobate. And the powers of hell, uh, uh, the, the, the hell rather, is the place where all sinners, all of us, everybody that's ever lived, save Jesus Christ, deserve, richly deserve to go and spend eternity suffering torment, agony, that we read about uh, over in uh, Luke Hell is the place where we all justly deserve to go. And hell, as it were, has a just claim on us, on every last one of us. You deserve to come here and suffer, if I may personify hell for a moment. But hell's claim on those in the New Testament age whom the Father wishes to redeem is rendered, that claim is rendered null and void by the church's message of forgiveness in Christ. You see that? We might even put it this way, and I know this may sound a little funny, but I don't think it's improper. We might put it this way. The power of God's justice is no match for the power of God's grace with respect to the one whom he wishes to save.
Every believer, every person whom God intends to save deserves his justice. But he gives us his grace. Justice doesn't have the final say, you see. Grace does for us who are Christians. If there's anybody here right here today who is not a Christian, God's justice is hanging over you. And if you don't flee to the Jesus who is the Messiah, who's the only Savior of sinners, if you don't flee to that Savior that God is offering you in faith and say, Jesus, you're my only hope. Please save me from the hell that I deserve. Please make me your child and forgive me of my sins through Christ. If you don't do that, you will spend eternity experiencing the wrath of God in hell. And yeah, Satan might be sitting next to you cooking as well someday. You don't want to go there. Who in their right mind wants that? Nobody. You sh- Nobody should want that. And yet, we all deserve it. And we will get it if God's grace doesn't win out. And that will only happen if we believe the gospel message that Christ is the Savior of sinners. And Him alone. Believe today if you haven't already. Fourth point. We've seen the ultimate builder of the New Testament church, the rock-solid foundation of the New Testament church, the great promise regarding the New Testament church. Now let's, in the remaining time, look at the appointed gatekeepers of the New Testament church. Verse 19. He's speaking here to Peter. And I will give you, and it is singular there, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you shall bind on earth, and I'm going to translate this different than the New American Standard does, because it's the better translation. Whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you shall loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. And I'll, when we get to Matthew 18, I'll explain why I translated it that way, not today. What's going on here? Well, we have, to, we have to unpack, what does he mean, several things we have to unpack, what does he mean by the, the, the church, first of all, that he mentioned in the uh, a previous uh, verse, um, and uh, we also have to unpack the keys of the kingdom and uh, binding and loosing. So let's do that in the next few minutes. So, first of all, he talked about the church, and I didn't explain this when we were talking about the previous verse, but he mentions it. What is the church that he's referring to, that the gates of hell will not prevail as the gates of hell are trying to keep the church away, uh, will not prevail against it. William Hendrickson rightly identifies the church here as the sum total of all believers in its New Testament manifestation, because he's referring to the New Testament age, the sum total of all believers in the New Testament manifestation, wherever it, the church, that church, is truly represented on earth. That's the church to which he is referring there in the previous verse that now is picked up uh, and referred to as the kingdom of heaven in verse 19. In other words, the church is the universal body of Christ. It's a spiritual entity. And notice this about the church, again referring back to verse 18 briefly, Jesus says, it's my church. She belongs to him. He bought her with his own divine, infinitely 
valuable life, which is what that meal points us to when we partake of it. He purchased you and me and the whole church down through the ages in heaven and on earth. Old Testament and new. The Old Testament saints were in the church too. And she belongs to Jesus and no one else. Clergy take special note. No one else. I sometimes make the mistake of saying, you know, oh yeah, over at my church we do this, and I usually catch myself, I didn't mean my church. Because it isn't. This isn't my church. This isn't Cecil Paul's church, Kirk's church, Bill's church. This is Jesus' church. And we need to remember that. So that's the church, and he, ref- he, he, he refers to it now in verse 19 as the kingdom of heaven. He's still talking about the church that he talked about in the previous verse, but he changes up the, uh, the uh, description. What's the meaning of the keys of the kingdom of heaven? What does he mean by that phrase? I, uh, children, this is what I was talking about earlier, so we're going to talk about this now. In the previous verse, in verse 18, Jesus spoke of the New Testament church as if it were a house that... He was going to build. Actually, that he was in the process of building. But he describes the church as a building, you see. That he himself is the builder of. And this figure of the church as a house is what lies behind the reference that he now makes in verse 19 to the keys. So the keys in verse 19 are keys to that building, to that House, which is the church. And the keys to the church do what keys generally do. For those who possess the keys, and that is they control access to the house, to the church. There's an interesting passage in Isaiah 22 that is supportive of this interpretation. Uh, don't go there. Uh, just listen. Well, yeah, I guess you can go there. I'm going to read a few verses to you. But um, Isaiah 22, in this passage, uh, the Lord is announcing that he will be replacing an unworthy governor of Jerusalem named Shebna. Uh, and he's going to replace him with a new governor by the name of Eliakim. Okay? So that's the that's kind of what's going on. You'll see that as I read it to you. But notice at the end of the verse, uh, the section that we're reading here, what, what, uh, that's where it becomes really important. Um, so, but I'm going to start in verse 15. I'm going to read through verse 23. Thus says the Lord God of hosts, come, go to this steward, this steward, notice the steward of, uh, of the king, go to this steward, to Shebna, who is in charge of the royal household. What do you have here? And whom do you have here that you have hewn a tomb for yourself here? You who hew a tomb on the height. You who carve a resting place for yourself in the rock. Behold, the Lord is about to hurl you headlong, O man. He is about to grasp you firmly and roll you tightly like a ball to be cast into a vast country. 
There you will die, and there your splendid chariots will be. You, your, you shame, I mean, there your splendid chariots will be, you shame of your master's house. And I will depose you from your office, and I will put you down from your station. Then it will come about in that day that I will summon my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will Clothe him with your tunic and tie your sash securely about him. I will entrust him with your authority. So remember Shebna, governor uh, under the king, had authority. He was a steward, but he had authority. I'm going to entrust him with your authority, this new guy, Eliakim. And he will become a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Then I will set the key of the house of David on his shoulder. When he opens, no one will shut. When he shuts, no one will open. And I will drive him like a peg in a firm place. And he will become a throne of glory to his father's house. Here we see the term key of the house of David there in verse 21, uh, verse 22 rather, of Isaiah 22. The term key of the house of David is used by the Lord or by Isaiah uh, as a symbol of governmental authority, of governing power, or authority I should say. And notice that verse said it's authority that will allow uh, Eliakim, the new governor, to open or shut the gates of the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is a metaphor for the church down through the ages. Revelation 21. The keys were given to this governor who is a steward who replaced another steward, Shebna, who was under the king of Judah. You all hopefully hear where this, what all that signifies. This supports the interpretation that the keys are the keys to Jerusalem, to the church in its New Testament manifestation. Jesus' words also in uh, Matthew chapter 23 also lend credence to this understanding of the keys, that they're keys to the church. Um, in chapter 23, Matthew is, uh, Jesus rather, in that passage, is condemning Israel's unfaithful religious leaders whom he, Jesus, describes as sitting in the chair of Moses. In other words, you're in a position of power in the Jewish church, is what he's saying there. He says that at the front end of that chapter, um, in uh, verse 13 of, uh, uh, of this section of that chapter, verse 13 of Matthew 23. But, in its parallel passage in Luke, the parallel passage in Luke, instead of saying... Actually, let me read. I need to read Matthew 23. So let's, let's, you can turn there if you'd like. This is important to get. Matthew 23, verse 13. He says, well, pronouncing woe, and he says to them, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven. You shut off the kingdom of heaven from men. For you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. And then, this I won't read, but in the Luke parallel, which is Luke 11.52, instead of saying, as Matthew does, you shut off the kingdom of heaven from men, it says, 
You have taken away the key of knowledge. In other words, to take away uh, that key of knowledge is to shut off the kingdom of heaven from men. And notice, it was the Old Testament church's religious leaders, the Jewish church's religious leaders, who shut people out of the kingdom of heaven by their misuse of a key that they possessed. They possessed the key. And they were shutting people out with it. Evilly. So, my point is, and you get it probably more than you want to now, but the key is to the church. To the spiritual body, the believing body, which the covenant community. And use of the keys involves binding and loosing, Jesus says in this verse. The phrase to bind and loose was a familiar one in, in the Jewish synagogues of Jesus' day, where it denoted to forbid, that was to bind, or to allow, that was to loose. And that's what those, to forbid or to allow, is what those term, two terms meant. And as I alluded to a few moments ago, with respect to the church, this means, among other things, to let certain people into the church and to put certain people out of the church. This is church discipline. So, who were these keys given to? That was the point, originally, of the point, which is uh, the the appointed gatekeepers of the New Testament church, or doorkeepers, that's probably a better word to use. Who were they given to? These keys were certainly given to Peter. Okay, Jesus is speaking directly to Peter here. Everything from verses 17 to 19 is addressed to him, and the yous there in the English are all singular in the Greek. You can't see the difference between singular, just like in English, you can't see the difference between singular and plural, except through context. Well, in, in, uh, in Greek, you can see it by reading it. You don't need the context. But these keys were not just given to Peter. They were entrusted to Peter, and I'm going to use a quote here from Acts 2, 14, where the phrase is found. They were entrusted not just to Peter, but to Peter taking his stand with the eleven. Peter taking his stand with the eleven. It applied to all the apostles. These were disciples now. They were going to be the future apostles of the New Testament church. It applied to all of them as well as Peter. So the other, the other apostles, Matthias, who would replace Judas, and then with the addition of Paul. This is evident that this is the case, that it's not just Peter, even though Peter's, Jesus is addressing Peter, that it applies to all of the apostolate, is evidence from the fact that Jesus, again, is addressing all the apostles in verse 15. Who do all of you guys say that I am? And then Peter answers. And then Peter, uh, and then Jesus says what he says in response to Peter. It's also evident from the fact that Peter had just been speaking on behalf of the entire group when he gave his answer to Jesus' question to them regarding his identity. And it's evident from the fact that the authority that is clearly entrusted to Peter, clearly entrusted to Peter on this occasion, is later given, clearly given to the remaining future apostles uh, of the church. Over in John, chapter 20, after the resurrection, Jesus says this, verse 23 of John's gospel. He says to them, after he's reappeared to them, he says, uh, I'll start in verse 22, And when he had said this, which was peace to you, uh, as the Father has sent me, I now send you, 
Uh, when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. And then he says in verse 23, if you, and this is all the disciples, if you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. That is saying the same thing that is said over in chapter 16 and chapter 18 of Matthew, but we're not in 18 yet, but that's said in verse 19 of chapter 16. It's given the very same authority that Peter is clearly given, like I say, it's implied that it's given to the others, is clearly given to them in John 20, verse 23. So, Jesus is addressing Peter here as a representative of the apostolate. That is, the collective group of apostles. So the keys are given to Peter, They're given to all the apostles, but they are also given to all elders, all church leaders who are elders in Christ's church down throughout the New Testament age. And the reason for this is, and I'm not going to go into it here, we're going to do it in Matthew 18 when we get to it, Lord willing, but is the apostles were elders as well as apostles. Peter makes that clear in Peter, 1 Peter chapter 5. They were elders, and also Acts chapter 15. They were elders as well as apostles. And in this is being given to the apostles in their role as apostles, yes, but also in their role as elders. And so if the keys were given to them as elders, the, the power of the keys also is given to all elders down, who succeed them in wherever the church is found. And the New Testament, like I say, in other places, provides us warrant that allows us to arrive at that conclusion, but we're not going to cover it today, but suffice it to say it now. What this means is that the church cannot fail. The true church cannot fail. Jesus is its head, its king, its great shepherd, its substitute. He is the one who protects her, who grants her the strength to advance the uh, gates of hell, against the gates of hell, uh, and against the forces of evil. And he has equipped her with leaders under shepherds, he being the great shepherd, whom he has also delegated authority, his authority, to care for the flock. And it involves, by the way, more than just church discipline. It also involves teaching and instruction, uh, which I will get to again when we, uh, Lord willing, when we get to Matthew 18 and discuss church, uh, uh, the steps of church discipline there. But the point is, it's good news. The church is marching, as the hymn says, forward. Maybe not so well in the United States anymore, But it's marching in Africa, in Asia, in South America, and by leaps and bounds. Um, The church isn't all about the United States. Praise the Lord for that. Uh, And Jesus will have his way. He is having his way. Uh, The end of history has been written. The king and his people will win. Um, The new Jerusalem will be what we saw described there. In Revelation 21. Praise the Lord for it. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this time. We thank you for uh, all of this truth that we have received. It's a lot. But thank you, Lord Jesus, that you 
are our king. And you purchased us when you died on the cross to pay the punishment that our sins deserve. You took it, you absorbed it, you quenched it. And we thank you that your righteousness makes us holy in the sight of you and the Father and the Spirit. And thus we are reconciled as we trust in you as our only hope. We are reconciled forevermore. And we belong to the the church in heaven, the new Jerusalem. Um, And um, we thank you that you and your church will be victorious. And we can be confident of that and rejoice in that, even when we see setbacks in places like the United States. Please help us to keep this heavenly perspective in mind. And we thank you for these truths. And we pray them all in Christ's name. Amen. The Lord Jesus, uh, before he ascended into heaven, gave the church two holy ordinances. We call them sacraments sometimes in our circles. But he instituted them as the king of the New Testament church, indeed of the church throughout the ages. And record of the institution of the Lord's Supper is found in several places, one of which is uh, Mark chapter 14, verses 22 and following. I'll read that to you. And while they were eating, he took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to them and said, Take it, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I shall never again drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. The Lord told us that we are to observe uh, regularly this holy ordinance of communion. And we believe this sacrament, we believe scripture teaches that this sacrament is a sign it is a symbol, in other words. Uh, the the elements themselves uh, kind of speak to what it's about. The breaking of the bread, uh, bro- the broken bread as an imitation of Jesus on this occasion, pointing to his broken body. Uh, the color of the uh, wine, um, pointing to his shed blood. So it speaks to that in the, in the very uh, elements themselves. So it is a sign, it is a symbol. It points us to the uh, cross work of Christ uh, as the pinnacle of the atoning work. But it's more than that. Scripturally, we believe it uh, is also a seal of... uh, So it's a sign of the covenant of grace and the covenant mediator, and it's a seal of the covenant of grace. What that means, scripturally, is God is saying something in this. Jesus in particular, God the Son, he is the host of this table, of this meal, and uh, he is risen and he is here by his Spirit, and he is saying something. He is essentially saying through this, this sacrament and you're partaking of it, all those promises I have made to you are yes and amen in me. They are true. Uh, they, you can stake your eternal destiny on them. You can believe them. And I will not let you down. That's what Jesus is in effect saying. Um, and that's the sense in which they are a seal of this covenant that Jesus brought to fruition by his life, death, and resurrection. And so it's a sign and a seal. And we also see indications in Scripture that it's um, that when properly partaken of, that is by faith, trusting in Jesus alone, that it becomes a means of grace, 
a means that the Holy Spirit uses. God uses means to bless his people. And this is one of the means that he uses to actually bless us spiritually in a way that's intangible. We don't understand it. It's just alluded to by Paul. But he indicates that there is blessing that comes from partaking of the, of the, uh, of the, the cup. And uh, by implication, the, the bread as well. If properly, if properly received, that is trusting in Jesus as we, and looking to Jesus. And so God will bless you and me as we rightly partake in humility and in faith, looking to Christ alone. There is evidence of that in scripture and we believe that to be the case. Um, this meal is not for everyone to partake of. We have a lot of visitors here this morning. We're very glad you all are here. Um, uh, but a person who partakes of this meal needs to know that they're a Christian, uh, that he's a Christian. You need to n- know that. Um, you need to, and the evidence of your being a Christian is that you are a baptized member in good standing of a church that's really a church. By that I mean a church that is evangelical. What that means is that believes and preaches the good news of the gospel of Christ, which is that Jesus saves sinners as they trust in him alone to save them. Not in their baptism, not in their church membership or good works or anything else, but in Jesus alone. And if your church teaches that message, that Jesus is the only hope of sinners and it's only faith that unites you to Christ savingly, uh, you are welcome to partake with us. This is not, we don't uh, practice closed uh, communion here in this church. If um, you claim to be a Christian, notice I said claim, but you are practicing some sin in your life. You know you're sinning, and you're practicing it, and you don't care that it offends God. First of all, you're probably not a Christian. Uh, regardless of what your church may say or what you may say or the fact that you prayed a prayer somewhere sometime. Uh, you're probably not a Christian. And if you are, you're a fool, uh, and you have no right to think you're a Christian. If you are clinging to some sin in your life, you absolutely must not come. You must not partake. Let it pass by you if that's you. Uh, and you need to ask the Lord to have mercy on your soul and bring you to repentance, because only he can do that. But if you are struggling with sin in your life, you've had a sinful week. We've all had a sinful week. What am I talking about? We've all sinned this week. Uh, and some of, our, some of us have sinned repeatedly the same areas of sin, our besetting, more besetting sins, if you will. But when those times have happened, you grieve. You come to your senses and go, what am I doing? Why am I saying that? Or why am I thinking that? You know, and you hate the fact that you do things that offend God and that grieve God's heart. And you want to be rid of those things. But you're struggling to do that. And you haven't fully succeeded. And you won't, by the way, until you get to heaven. Um, but that's okay. You can come. That's, this is for you to help strengthen you. The Lord, so that the Holy Spirit might use this to strengthen you, perhaps, in, in your resistance to temptation. Um, cause you to teach you and to instruct you as well and, and encourage you. You need this but not if you're deliberately clinging to sin. Don't come if you're deliberately clinging to sin. But do come if you're struggling but want to be rid of it. Let's pray and ask the Lord to bless our partaking of this now.
Lord, we do uh, thank you for this means of sanctifying grace that you use in the lives of your people to sanctify us. We thank you that uh, we can, um, through these tangible elements that we can feel and taste, uh, we are reminded of that you are a tangible Savior, a Savior who just uh, didn't just seem to be on earth, but was embodied, uh, was human, is human, as well as fully God. And we thank you that you are like us in that respect. You took on our humanity that you might save us, and you did. We thank you that this meal points us to that fact. And we thank you that you promised in your word to use this meal as a means of blessing us if we partake by faith. So we ask that you would help us to do just that, to believe in our hearts that Jesus is our only hope, our only good, and to joyfully uh, feast on him as we feast on these elements. And we pray that you'd set these elements aside from the common everyday use that they would normally be used for under the holy purposes for which we are about to use them now. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, as I, uh, ministering in his name, now give this bread to you. And he said, take, eat. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Please uh, wait until everybody is served, and then we'll eat together, and likewise with the, uh, with the wine, we'll have everybody be served, and then eat that collectively together. The body of Christ was broken for you. Take and eat. And in the same manner, he also took the cup, and having given thanks in his name, as we have already done, he gave it to his disciples, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink from it, all of you. There is wine around the perimeter, and if you can, in good conscience, take wine. Uh, There is grape juice in the very center, but we encourage you to take the wine. It's more appropriate, arguably, scripturally. The blood of Christ was shed for you. Drink from it, all of you. Pray together. Oh Lord, we thank you for not just saving us from your own wrath and judgment, but Lord, that you have reconciled us to yourself, made us your royal sons and daughters, and that you uh, bless us throughout our lives and strengthen us in our walk of faith with you. We thank you for this means of grace, and we thank you that um, you use this in us as we um, look to you this week. Uh, You use it to strengthen us, and we ask that indeed you would do that, especially when we are confronted with temptations that we will inevitably face. Please use it to, that we might have the strength to resist uh, and do what pleases you rather than that which pleases the flesh. 
And we pray that you would also bless our witness to a lost and dying world. Help us to see the sinners, the folks around us as lost sinners, like we were, uh, no longer lost, but still sinners. But help us to see the need and to care and uh, to look for opportunities to talk about Jesus to those who need him so desperately. We pray this all in his name. Amen. Let's close our service. Receive now God's blessing. Now may the God of peace, who brought from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen.